Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I love hearing you sing that song and singing it with you. Uh, I just really believe that one of these days we'll be singing that in heaven around the throne of God. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. I have some good news for you. Uh, I think you'll be able to get some good rest today. I seem to have put the 8 o'clock crowd to sleep. And I wanted you to know that this might be, if if nothing else, you might get a good nap out of this today as we begin to look at the book of Colossians. I want to begin reading in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that today you would open our eyes to better understand the context and the the situation in which this letter was written, and to see just how relevant it is today. So we ask you now to speak to us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I had turned this sermon outline into my preaching class 40 years ago at seminary, it would have flunked. And the reason was there's way too many points to cover in one sermon. But that professor's long gone and I'm not in school anymore and you can't give me a grade. So I'm not going to worry about it. But whenever you begin something, you, you need to know the background of it. And, and, know, and I know that most people come in on Sunday, and believe it or not, when I preach, I want to give you something to take home. I call it, I want something you can put in your pocket, take it home, and live it out. Well, there is some of that in this. But there's also a lot of background that I want you to understand so that when you, we read this letter, and we, we can better interpret it accurately. This letter is one of Paul's shortest ones, 95 verses spread over four chapters. It's interesting that Paul never visited this church. Now, most of the letters that he writes, he had started those churches. He had planted those churches, and he wrote back to them after he was gone. He never had visited the the place, the church in Colossae. And Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. In fact, probably wrote three of them at the same time. These weren't the only prison epistles, but he probably wrote Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon all at the same time and sent them by Tychicus back to this area. And the reason was Ephesus is about 100 miles from Colossae and Philemon lived in Colossae. So all of these letters were written about the same time and sent there. This is not a big theological 
treatise that scholars are going to pour over. It's really a pastoral letter written to common people living in a small town who had not been Christians a long time. In fact, the oldest or the, or the, the longest any of these folks had been, been a believer was probably less than five years. And they had come from Gentile pagan backgrounds. And so Paul is trying to combat some false teaching to give right theology. Now, whether you like it or not, right theology is the basis for right living. If your theology is wrong, your life is going to be wrong. And a lot of times when you mention the word theology or doctrine, Everybody's eyes glaze over and they begin to go, great, this is going to be boring. I'll be glad when he gets to the practical stuff. Well, I've got news for you. If you stay awake long enough, there's some practical stuff here. But the solid theology really is the basis for getting to God, becoming a child of God, getting to heaven, how you live is on this earth. Reminds me of... Uh, an incident that's recorded, uh, his name was Reverend Kingstone Greenland, and he visited a vacant house with a friend who wanted to purchase this house. And the friend was particularly struck by the beauty of one of the rooms that he wanted to make an office out of it. However, in the corner of it was an old cupboard that he didn't like. And he said to his friend, when I buy this house, I'm going to remove it. And another man who was an architect said, no, you won't. And he turned around and he said, look, if I buy this house, I can do anything I want to do with this house. And he said, you can do what you like with the house, but you can't remove that cupboard. He said, well, why not? Is it in the deed? Is there a clause that protects it? He said, no, it's not in the deed. It's on the plan. You cannot take away the cupboard without taking down the house because it's part of the main structure. And a lot of times, if you've tried to knock out a wall, sometimes you find a supporting beam that you didn't realize was there, that if you take it down, that house will come down. Well, I want you to know, Jesus Christ is the center of, of what we believe, and if you water him down or remove him, you no longer have what we call Christianity. You can't, you can't change him. And so... You can't take away the cupboard like, like he couldn't take away the cupboard in that house. You can't take away Christ. You can't take away the supremacy of Christ or you destroy the whole structure of Christianity. That's what Colossians is about. It's about the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. So with that in mind, let me give you a little boring background. First of all, let's talk about the city of Colossae. Now, Colossae was located about 100 miles inland. In fact, go ahead and put the map up there if you would. I've got two pictures for you. If you see over there, the extreme left, you see Ephesus in a little bold. You come straight across, you see Colossae, about 100 miles. Laodicea is in there and Hierapolis. Now, if you can tell there, Laodicea and Colossae and Hierapolis are right there together, look like a little triangle. They're called the Tri-Cities. And Colossae at one time was a big place. In fact, it was back way, way before Paul. Let me, let me give you a, a B.C. date, 486 B.C. 
Now, Paul's writing this in A.D. about 60 to 62. Are you with me? You know, B.C. is before Christ is what I call it. I don't know if that's what it stands for or not, but B.C. is before the A.D. came. Are y'all with me? Okay. Y'all are already scaring me. I ain't even gotten started good. A king by the name of Xerxes. His other name was Ahasuerus. You know who her, his wife was? Esther. Same place. Came marching through here. And one of the historians at that time said that Colossae was a city inhabited, prosperous, and great. Now show that next slide if you would. This is the other picture. It was in a valley. And you'll see these tri-cities here. Well, when the Romans took over, they changed the road from the, from the east or from the west. And they, they changed the road. And also, Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis were in an earthquake zone. In fact, it destroyed all three of the cities in A.D. 60. Some of them were rebuilt. But... Because the Romans changed the road around, they bypassed Colossae because it had been destroyed earlier and rebuilt. It was smaller now. It was a small town. It was a has-been town. It, it still had some of the ruins from the earlier destruction, but Hierapolis and uh, Laodicea were now the big cities. And yet Paul writes a letter to small town people, not small people, small town people, because something's going on in this church that uh, was false. Now, later on, the whole city was destroyed in the 12th century by the Turks, the Muslims. And archaeologists have found the remains of the Acropolis, the theater, and the church. But the spiritual health of that little town, even though it was not a major city like Hierapolis and Laodicea, it, the, the spiritual temperature of that place was that there were a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different things being taught. And so these Christians, even though they had followed Christ, were being taught erroneously about Jesus. Let's talk about the church. Paul didn't start this church, so who started it? Well, when Paul was spending time in Ephesus for two years, the book of Acts tells us that all the people in that region heard the gospel, and many of them responded. One of those men was the man Epaphras. Epaphras is mentioned many times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Colossians. He was a fellow worker with Paul, but Paul probably led him to Christ. And in Colossians, he calls Epaphras one of you guys or one of them. So Colossians, excuse me, Colossae was probably the hometown of Epaphras. Here's something you can put in your pocket. What did Epaphras do? Epaphras met Christ in Ephesus, 100 miles away, and went home and told his story. He told what Jesus had done for him. And as a result of that, a church formed. Now, someone else was from Colossae. His name was Philemon. You have a book of the Bible named after him, a letter from Paul written probably at the same time as the Colossian letter and the Ephesian letter, and the church met in the home of Philemon. They didn't have a church building. They met in home, and they met in, Philemon was a wealthy man. In fact, the letter from Paul 
to Philemon was to ask for Philemon to take his runaway slave, Onesimus, who had become a Christian, to take him back and, ask, and told him to forgive him and to take him back. And so you've got all of this happening together. I wanted you to understand that Philemon and Colossians, they, they kind of go hand in hand, even though the letter was written to the man and the Colossian letter was written to the church. I wanted you to make all of that connection, but what an impact Epaphras had just by sharing his testimony. Don't ever underestimate the power of your story, uh, what Jesus has done for you. If Jesus has changed your life, you've got a story. It's not a story, it's an account, it's a truth. Don't ever underestimate. No one can ever take that away from you. How God forgave you of your sin, you placed your faith in Jesus, and he gave you a new life. Now, what was the concern that why Paul wrote this? Well, there had been a lot of discussion about what the false teaching was, and, and basically, after piecing all of it together from Colossians, there was three major false teachings going on. And I want you to know, they're still going on today. I mean, you're gonna, it may not be in the same terminology, but you're going to be confronted with it today. The first one was dualism. Now, that's a fancy word for saying this, that all all uh, physical things, all physical matter is evil. And only spiritual things are good. And so out of that, you got some problems. First of all, didn't the scripture tell us that God created the world and he said it was good? Of course, sin has marred it. And what about we celebrate at Christmas time? Jesus becoming flesh. So if Jesus becomes flesh, then there's, there's something wrong with that if all physical things are bad. He also had those that taught that, you know, since physical things are bad, you have to punish yourself. So you deny yourself uh, of things that God said were okay. Some were forbidding to marry, for example. You can't be married. Because that's a, that's a normal desire for most people. And unless God's gifted you another way, you would like to be. But no, no, you have to not be married because that would, that's bad. Well, out of dualism, first of all, if we had first church of dualism, it wouldn't grow very well. Because people would not want to punish themselves very much. But out of that came... The, the false doctrine of a weak Christology. Weak as in Christ is not all that you need. If you could sum up the word, if you could sum up the book of Colossians in three words, it would be complete in Christ. That's all you need. But, but dualism says, well, it's Christ plus this or Christ this is, he, he couldn't, well, no, they would say he couldn't have been God. He couldn't have come, become a man because God is perfect and God would not become evil and all flesh is evil. And you wouldn't believe all of the different variations of this. Some believe that, you know, there was a lesser God and a lesser one, a lesser one, a lesser one, a lesser one. Finally, you had Jesus and it, it gets real complicated, but just trust me, they were being told that Jesus was not God. Jesus was not man. 
And they were, the second, the second false teaching was legalism. Now, you know what legalism is. It, it's basically saying we approach God on the basis of our works rather than faith. Legalism shows up in the letter as Paul discusses things such as circumcision or observing holy days and various Jewish ceremonies. You must uphold this, you must have that and this and that. You must keep this or you can't be saved. Of course, Galatians fights that also. But if anybody tells you it's Jesus plus anything, that's not right because it's just Jesus that saves us. However, we've, we've got people that today say, well, you know, you, I, I, you follow Jesus, but you've got to keep this to stay saved, or you better toe the line, or you won't be saved anymore. I hate to tell you all this. I hate to burst your bubble, but you don't keep yourself saved. <laughs> You're giving yourself way too much credit if you think, if I can live just right, I'll keep myself saved. You're not keeping yourself saved. God saves you and God holds on to you. And you're not going to keep yourself saved. But legalism says, okay, now you follow Jesus, but now you better observe this holy day or, or you can't be right with God or you better do this and so forth. So legalism leads to works righteousness. And there's a lot of that going on today. There are a lot of people in church today hoping they gain a little extra credit on their way to heaven. They're trying to gain up enough points and they're trying to get enough cards punched that they're going to get to heaven. And you and I both know that we cannot save ourselves. The third false teaching in fact, let me back up for a minute. You know, I, when I talked about weak Christology, Colossians is the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. It's the most Jesus-centered book in the Bible. And the reason is because of the weak Christology. Now, the third is mysticism. Apparently, some of the false teachers at Colossae we're putting a lot of weight and stock into their dreams and visions. Or the worship of angels became a, a, an item. And they also thought, well, we've obtained this special knowledge. So we're on a higher level than you. That doesn't happen today, does it? <laughs> Mysticism, basically the doctrinal error becomes a spiritual superiority or a spiritual elitism. In other words, most of y'all, and here's what they would say, most of y'all, y'all are, are on the normal Christian life. Yeah. But... If you were where I was and you'd had these visions and you had these experiences and, and you had had this, then you would be up here on level with me as a Christian. Now, we're not talking about maturity. We're talking about the kingdom of God. That, that, that totally says that the, there's no body of Christ, that all of us are different. And it also is a denial of the church that we're all one in Christ Jesus. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Can you imagine, all right, today in this building, all over this place are all kinds of people, all ages. 
We mature as we grow older. At least we're supposed to physically, don't we? So instead of calling us old, I'm going to call us more mature. I'm more mature than the preschoolers in the preschool department today. But let me ask you this. Am I any more of a person than that preschooler? Huh. Now, I have more experience and I have a lot more age but there's still a person just like me. Well, if you've been saved by the grace of God, you've repented of your sins, asked God to forgive you, believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he died for our sins and raised him from the dead and placed your faith in Jesus, you are just as much saved as anyone else on earth has been saved through Jesus Christ. And there's no superiority here. Oh, I'm so, I'd be glad. I'd be glad when you, you, you common Christians will, will achieve our level of spiritual superiority. Of course, I'm probably speaking of something that doesn't happen anymore today. Y'all, y'all ain't never met anybody like that, have you? Somewhere, you need to mark it down. In fact, uh, the false teaching was partly pagan, partly legalistic. Another mixture of philosophies and beliefs is called syncretism. They believed they had a special knowledge, a better understanding of some mystical wisdom they possessed. But I want you to mark this down. False teaching, false teaching is rarely completely false. It's false enough in certain major ways that it compromises the integrity of the truth. False teachers today use the name of Jesus. They will talk about him. They may tell you that there's other books other than the Bible that have divine truth in them. Whether it be the Book of Mormon, the Quran, where it may be uh, the Watchtower, astrology, New Age teaching, anything that adds to Scripture, anything that waters down Jesus, any, any teaching that basically says that Jesus is not God is false. So that's what he's concerned about. That's why Colossians is the most Christ-centered book of the Bible. Now, what's the content? You can break it down into two parts. It's real simple. The first two chapters are part something, and the second two chapters, the third and fourth chapters are. The first two chapters deal with the supremacy of Christ. Chapter 1 presents Christ as the creator and sustainer of the world. He's the head of the church. He's the reconciler of all things. Chapter 2 presents him as the source of all wisdom and knowledge, as fully human and fully divine, as the deliverer from sin and evil, and as the fulfillment of the Jewish law. Can you have, now this is a trick question, can you have a Christless Christianity. Well, not in the real sense, because if you don't have Christ, you don't have Christianity. However, in churches today, Christ can be lost in all of the machinery. 
We can get so wrapped up in our teaching and, and exegesis and all of our word grammar and all of that that we forget to bring people to Jesus. We can get so caught up in the emotionalism and the styles of worship and feel so good and yet never come to Jesus and never lift him up. We can, we can worry about original languages and grammatical historical methods and background material and not about trusting Jesus. You can be so fixed on ministry forms and Bible study and church work and the rhythm of ministry that it's possible to actually call yourself serving Jesus but never trusting him. And so there are a lot of people today sitting in churches where Jesus will not be lifted up. They go through the form. Let me illustrate it this way. Do you remember when you had, when you and your spouse had your first child? Or maybe you, maybe you're not married, and just imagine having your first child. Okay. And you're so excited. You stay away from church for a few weeks because the, the doctor tells you to keep that baby in so that it's not exposed to germs and things of that nature. And finally, you're going to come to church and you're bringing your new baby and you've got a brand new car seat because you didn't have one before and it, it serves as a carrier. And so you've got this brand new car seat carrier and you've got this precious child and you come into the church building and everybody sees you in the hall and they rush over to you and they ooh and they ah over the car seat. <laughs> Missed the whole point, didn't they? If you don't lift up Jesus, you're going through the motions. If Jesus isn't presented as the way to change a life, you're just going through the motions. And we can focus on the car seat instead of the Christ, if you understand what I'm saying. The second part of Colossians is about service of Christians. The focus of the new life of believer. Chapter 3 talks about your relationship with Christ as a believer. Your new desires. Your new practices. Your new relationship with other believers. Your new relationships at home. And then it continues in chapter 4 as it talks about your mission in the world as a believer. So that's enough introduction. Let's look at the first two verses. Let's talk about what I'll call the correspondence from Paul to the Colossians. Paul is battling false teachers and false teachers at Colossae. So it's important for him, first of all, to tell people who he is. If we ever have guest speakers many times, we will sh uh, share their credentials, what gives them what gives them authority or, or clout to, to listen to? Well, the first thing Paul states is his authority. He's an apostle. Apostle, in the truest sense. This is the word that referred to the original 12. The apostles had to be all witnesses of Christ's resurrection. They were appointed by Christ and given authority by Christ and entrusted with the message of the gospel. Well, Paul called himself an apostle out of due time. He later came to Christ on the road to Damascus. Christ appeared to him and called him and told him, I want you to serve me. 
So he was an apostle in the truest sense. There are no more apostles like that today. We have the word of God been given to us. That, that office was a temporary office by the apostle. There are no more apostles in the truest sense of the form. Now, there may be people that call themselves an apostle, but they're not one of the 12, or they're not like Paul. But Paul immediately says, I was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul didn't volunteer. He was drafted. And anytime God has a call on your life, he drafts you. <laughs> and you know what? You folks, you need to ask, what is God's will for my life? Whether it's a Christian business person, Christian, Christian lay person, whatever it might be, God has a will for you and a perfect will for you. And Paul said, it was by the will of God that I'm an apostle. I didn't volunteer for this. But I want you to think for a moment with me that that moment when Jesus appeared to Saul as he was previously called, he became Paul. He became, he went from the most significant threat to Christianity to a believer in Jesus and to Christianity's most profound spokesperson. God used him to evangelize beginning in the Roman Empire on three different missionary journeys. He wrote 13 of the 26 books of the New Testament. You, I really believe he wrote Hebrews too. I didn't count that one. You'll find out I'm right when we get there. <laughs> but, but the fact is, look what Jesus did to him and did for him. To somebody who was the biggest threat to Christianity to the most outspoken believer for Christianity. Now that is a radical change, isn't it? Paul also mentions an accomplice and Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy didn't co-author the letter. This is basically, Paul wrote it this way, if we put it in today's vernacular. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, says hi. He's with me as I'm writing this. He didn't write the letter. Paul wrote the letter. But Timothy's called a brother. You know, Timothy had a lot of faults when he started out. He probably came to Christ on Paul's second missionary journey. But there was not a man more devoted to Paul and helping him than Timothy. Timothy one time was very timid and shy. Timothy had a lot of health problems. And Paul never healed him for some reason. But he had a lot of health problems. But the fact is that Timothy was such, so instrumental with him that he's included in the introduction to 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Paul understood the importance of partnership in ministry. We can't do what we do by ourselves. I'm so thankful for the people that serve in this congregation and do the things that you do, there's no way we could minister to everyone if you were not a part of this. Partnership. We're not lone rangers. We're partners in ministry. Churches are partners with other churches. I'm thankful that we are in a church where we're able to partner and help and encourage and support other church ministries and church plants because we're not an island here. You know, we're not the only people of God in Lubbock. We are one of the small groups of people in Lubbock that are called Christians. 
Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy, passed the mantle of leadership to him. But then here's the best part. Here's the parts I want you to put in your pocket and take home. And I'm, I'm headed, toward the go- headed toward the barn. I'm, I'm almost home. Paul's acknowledgement. He moves from his authority as an apostle and then mentions the church's identity in Christ. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae. Now, you may notice who are has been added, but in Christ, in Colossae. Paul considers the Colossians brothers and sisters. He calls them brethren. He's never met them. He's never seen them. But he says, you're a brother and sister in Christ. I'm writing to you. So two things in his acknowledgement. He acknowledges the believers in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ in Colossae. I don't want you to miss these two statements. If you're going to carry something home, here it is. He first says these believers are set apart. They're saints. Sometimes the word is holy. Now today, if you hear somebody use the word saint, It's usually in a connection of the Catholic Church has bestowed somebody's sainthood. I hate to tell you this, Catholic Church doesn't give you sainthood. Who gives you sainthood? Jesus Christ does. Because holy or saints doesn't mean that you are elevated above other people. You're set apart for God. When you turn from your sin and repentance to God and you ask him to forgive you and you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone and the Holy Spirit came to live in you, God took you and set you apart. You are my child in Christ, set apart to live for me and to show others the good news. It doesn't mean we're better than anybody. We're just forgiven. We become saints when you accept Christ. And I can't help but tell you what I've told you a hundred times before. You're either a saint or you ain't. If you're not in Christ, you ain't. But if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Because you've been set apart. You've been made holy by God. We are saints by virtue of our position in Christ. You didn't earn it. Church didn't give it to you. Wasn't bestowed on you. You became set apart, a child of God, when you gave your life, committed it to Jesus. But notice the next word, and faithful brethren, steadfast. The word faithful means steadfast and loyal. In the midst of all the false teaching, even though they were young in the faith, there were some who had remained faithful to the truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, the truth today is being attacked. It's being watered down. It's being added to. It's being taken away from. It's being denied. It's being ridiculed. 
In fact, our younger people are even told today that there is no absolute truth anymore. That whatever may be truth and right for you may not be truth and right for me. My prayer is that this congregation will always be a congregation that upholds the truth. This is it. Even the maps. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But the fact is, you see, the, the problem, you know what the problem with the truth is that it's offensive. And in a day and age where everybody's already wearing their feelings on their sleeves, the truth offends. To be told that you have no hope apart from Jesus Christ is offensive to people. To be told that you are a sinner and that all of us have sinned and that the wages of sin is death is offensive to people. But even in a small town, the small town of Colossae, there were some faithful, steadfast believers. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but when you keep believing and teaching and living the truth, you're going to be outnumbered all the time. Because the world is not following the truth. Notice that Paul says that they are in Christ in Colossae. They are not a church in Colossae. Now, don't misunderstand me. They are a church. But he says, you're in Christ in Colossae. You just happen to be together, and we call that a church. But a lot of people today say, well, I'm in church. No, you need to be in Christ. What are you into today? A lot of people say, what are you into? You into golf, you into fishing, whatever. You need to be in Christ. If any man is in Christ, they are a new creation. So we are believers in this room. We are believers in Christ in Lubbock. We happen to form together here. We call ourselves Southcrest. But far more important than you saying, well, I'm in Southcrest in Lubbock. No, you are in Christ in Lubbock. You attend Southcrest. Trust me, I know. You, you can be a member of a church and not be in Christ. So I want you to be in Christ instead of in the church. Now, notice the blessing that Paul gives. It's a pretty typical greeting that Paul gives. Grace. And to you and peace from God our Father. He uses that in all the letters that he writes. It has to be in that order. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. I'm almost through and y'all are almost rested. Don't miss this. You must experience grace before you have peace. Because peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. 
to be reconciled with him. And the only way you can be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. God gives us his grace. We would not be saved today if it weren't for the grace of God. And so God wants to have peace with us. Grace and peace. Now, I want to point out a little interesting tidbit here. Did you notice it says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading out of the New King James. Some of you are reading out of the King James. But some of you may not have that phrase, and the Lord Jesus Christ in there. In verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And it stops right there. Why is that? Because in every other letter except 1 Thessalonians, Paul includes and the Lord Jesus Christ. But he didn't hear. Now, I know he mentioned it up in in verse 1. We're not exactly sure why he left that off. Now, it doesn't change the meaning because we know he may have done it for emphasis because the Colossians may have said, well, how come he didn't say that? And he's about to talk about the centrality of Jesus. But it was so common for Paul to use the phrase to the saints in faith, to the grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that in 1 Thessalonians and Colossians, some scribes later added that. But the earliest manuscripts don't include that one little phrase. But I want to tell you, these saints were in Christ They lived in a pagan city. Would you call Lubbock a pagan city? I heard some no's and some yeses. And then the rest of you were chicken enough to not respond. (laughs) I wouldn't say that Jesus Christ is the center of Lubbock, Texas. Believers believe that, look at him that way. But Lubbock worships a lot of things. We got a humongous worship center down there that's called a stadium. I'm not against football. Get over it. I'm not against it. But I do know it's a big worship center because that's all some people live for. What a sad life if that's all you got to live for. I mean, let's think about it. We are outnumbered in this city of over 225,000 people, and who knows what the new census will show. But this is not a Christ-centered city. We have some leaders who believe in Christ. We have some that influence it, but, but you and I live in a pagan society. We live in a society that's walking away from God. So we are to be, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to hide from them? Let's just, let's just all gather up in a monastery somewhere. Is that what Jesus said to do? No. Listen to what Jesus said, John 17. I, he's praying for us. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. God has placed you and me in this place to be in Christ in Lubbock. We're the only representation of Jesus Christ in Lubbock are the Christians. We're in Christ in Lubbock. My question to you is, are you in Christ? I didn't ask you if you're in church. I see you. You're in church. Are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ... Are you faithful and steadfast to live for him? Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray for those today who need to give their life to Jesus. They're into religion. They're into good things, but they're not in you. May they turn from their sin, asking you to forgive them, and may they place their faith and trust in Jesus. I pray for those that need a place to belong, a a body of believers, uh, Christians who gather together called South Christ. If you want them to be part of this group, bring them. Pray for those that need to be baptized, unashamedly declaring their faith in Jesus. Lord, during this time, we pray that you would move in the hearts of people in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.